the mother passed. The child had lived with his grandparents and his aunt, I want to say for about four or five years. Very close. And the father's parents, once the mother passed, came in, demanded the child, and refused any and all contact by the, what the child had come to know as, as his close, caring family. It was arbitrary. It was, it was untethered to any fact or circumstance. It was just selfish. It was control. I'm Susan Chestnut, and we're here on another episode of From Foster Care to Family Law, a child welfare focus. And today I have with me my friend and colleague, Martin Kofsky. He is here from Kofsky, Deckard, and Clark, but he's Martin Kofsky, the one and only. He's been a litigator and family, well, attorney in many areas for almost 30 years, right, Martin? That's correct, 1992. Okay. And today we're going to talk about an article that you wrote on grandparents' rights and this is something that's come up in my practice a number of times, and because I practice family and dependency, I've always been very interested in how this can happen. So why did you write this article, and what's the title? Well, the title is an alternative perspective on the issue of grandparents' rights. And you know, Susan, your practice and mine overlap in a lot of different areas. I represent parents in a number of dependency cases, and I have actually operated on behalf of uh, non-offending parents and served alongside the state to terminate the rights of offending parents. And you become somewhat familiar with where children sit in these disputes. And my article really is centered on on balancing the rights of a child versus the rights of a parent. And sometimes the parent's interests are they're, they're jaded, they're tainted by self-interest, they're tainted by you know, personal relationships that they may have soured, you know, small slights that grow into large grievances. It was intended to highlight the fact that the law as it exists today in the state of Florida is inconsistent and in some cases hypocritical. It is, that it is. Was there a particular case that sparked your interest? Yeah, I've a number of years ago, um, I represented a family, a grandmother and uh, the sister of a deceased uh, mother. The mother passed. The child had lived with his grandparents and his aunt, I want to say for about four or five years. Very close. and the father's parents, once the mother passed, came in, demanded the child, and refused any and all contact by the ch- what the child had come to know as, as his close, caring family. It was arbitrary. It was, it was untethered to any fact or circumstance. It was just selfish. It was control. It was... Yeah, almost their their own their own way of saying that they disapproved of the union from the beginning, and they would simply erase the maternal side of this child's family. The state of the law at that time, and for the most part now, um, supported that result. Did you More, litigate it? I litigated it against Michael Gore. I think you might remember Michael. He was he's a fine fine lawyer. He's since retired. 
But we fought hard, and I tried every angle. I tried every opportunity, tried everything that I could to see if I could extract some sort of compassion, some sense that the child should have a relationship. We're not talking about a child going from household to household at that point. We're just saying, let this child who's been cared for and nurtured by his extended family for so many years, let him continue that relationship. But unfortunately, the uh, paternal family would, had wanted no part of it. That's when I, that's one of the cases that stands out in my mind is one of the benchmarks where I, I said the law needs to be contoured. I don't, as, as the article suggests, I, I don't think that a grandparent who sits on the sideline and never even tries to have a relationship, that after a child becomes, becomes disabled or deceased or, for that matter, incarcerated, I have a case concerning incarceration now, that they can show up, and at that point, after never having tried, and I'll explain why I use the word tried in just a moment, after never having tried, they now want that relationship. Right. Well, where are you under the law now with the ability for a grandparent? Do they have any rights? Well, the rights are limited. When there is a parent who's deceased, there can be some room for a grandparent to seek a relationship with a child, but still the, the rights of the surviving parent remain paramount. Right. Um, What's the analysis that the court uses in that circumstance? Well, under, under the Florida Constitution, I think it's Article 1, Section 23, the right to privacy. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar right that's used under the federal analysis as well, also a right to privacy. That the, the Constitution supposedly holds holds a sacred, a parent's right to raise their child as they choose. But don't children have constitutional rights as well? Well, you see, that's, that's, where the, that's where the law starts to fold in on itself a little bit. Yeah. It simply can't be a child's preference. You know, children are, are sometimes mercurial creatures. You know, child, you know, their preference might be based on who gives me more. I think it has to be based in harm, objectively provable harm in the event that the relationship is taken from them. If you have a caring, nurturing relationship with a grandparent, not a grandparent that is intrusive to the point of trying to bend the biological parents to their will, or not a situation where a grandparent openly disagrees or foments discontent in the child with the way they are being parented, we're talking about a, a grandparent who recognizes and respects the boundaries that are around the relationship that a biological have, parent has with their child. Mm-hmm. And encroachments into a parent's right to raise their child as, as they choose are all around the law. You know, the, most e- the, the easiest example, the, most, the one sort of at probably yours and my fingertips, is in the case of dependency. Mm-hmm where if there's a situation where it appears that a parent, by their practices or the environment that they're in, poses a risk to the child's physical, mental, or emotional health, that's when what most people commonly know is DCF can get involved, and that might lead to the state bringing charges of what's called dependency, which in some cases can lead to the termination of parental rights in the most egregious cases. 
Florida has, I think, a somewhat narrow-minded policy of reunification of the child at any cost. I've seen children reunified with parents who have been out of drug rehab for two weeks and allowed to travel with that parent simply on the I promise to do better I think that's where the guardian ad litem idea or the ideal of a guardian ad litem comes from. Sometimes. But, you know, they're not lawyers. A lot of them are volunteers. The, The lawyer for the guardian ad litem, there is a lawyer associated with them, but the guardians themselves don't necessarily really understand the system well enough to be effective participants in it. Now, I'm not saying they don't serve a useful role. I've met a number of them who are good. I've probably met an equal number of them where I gasp every time they open their mouth to talk. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about 39.509, and, and in that particular statute, grandparents, literally, it says grandparents' rights. And it delineates a couple factors. Have they had a relationship? Is it established? And those type of things. And you spoke on that earlier. Exactly. What I found interesting about that particular statute compared to the other family law statutes is that the family law statutes require the person petitioning to prove that there's some maltreatment or threat of harm to the child, whereas in dependency, by being found dependent already, that portion of that has already been completed. So there's already the threat of harm finding. I, I, I don't think, look, you're in a different arena when you're dealing with you know, the law outside of dependency. The law outside of dependency is intended and designed to remove a child from circumstance where harm has occurred or it's likely to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as, as an aside, I think that because of the difficulty of proof, the department is loath to to allege psychological harm on a child yeah. because, it, number one, it's very expensive. You have to start bringing in forensic psychologists and do, doing all sorts of analyses on the child to really determine whether and to what extent the child's been harmed emotionally or mentally. It, it's easy to identify bruises. It's easy to identify cigarette burns. It's easy to identify stra- marks from a belt. It's much harder to identify and quantify the emotional scars that might have been caused by years of emotional or psychological abuse or being locked in a room or denied access to playmates and family and being gaslit to believe mm-hmm. you know, that things are true that are not. I probably see that in a general family practice where one parent simply starts a campaign to alienate a child and as a result gaslights a child and there's no way to get around that. Once a child recoils and a child starts to believe whatever their gaslighter has infused in them, once that happens, you then have to start this incredibly expensive and arduous process of reunification therapy and hearings to have therapists appointed and have potentially social investigations done by licensed psychologists where they test everybody and speak to collateral witnesses and look at all documents to identify the fact that the child has been misled. But we've strayed a bit of the path. No, actually we didn't because that is the mental injury component that already has a finding independency. And you're saying that they're loath to do it. It's an expensive process and that cost independency goes to the states. And and a lot of the laws, quite frankly, are blunt instruments. Mm -hmm. Now, it's hard to address the nuanced aspects of a child's relationship with a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a close family friend 
in any way that doesn't involve the use of psychologists and others to, by whatever alchemy we use, determine whether the, the relationship is genuine. And then, even if the relationship is genuine, and even if the relationship is beneficial, then identify whether it intrudes on the protected space of a parent's right. Yeah. I focus on the child's rights, though, and what I do. And one of the things that I found about that particular dependency statute that I thought you might think was interesting, which was why I kind of had a little chuckle inside myself when you said that the the statutes were hypocritical, is that the dependency statute on the grandparent rights goes so far to say that the grandparents should be able to show affection and give gifts and letters from their grandparents or other family members is what it says. But yet in the other statutes for family law, for a temporary custody by an extended family member or the other statute about deployment, which I hope we get to soon, they don't go into if you're successful, this is what you get. That goes so far as to even say the, the intensity of the relationship that's permitted. What do you think about that? It's hard to just define and describe the intensity mm-hmm. of any relationship. You know, you could have a child who might outwardly you know, not reject, but might outwardly complain about their relationship with a grandparent, aunt, uncle, whoever's taking care of them. But those complaints may be based in the caregiver trying to bend the child to make them a moral creature, to instill in them a sense of ethics, a sense of direction, a sense of family, a sense of stability. And some children who grew up in environments without that, they reject it at first. They're used to this lack of structure. And sometimes when you try and throw the reins of structure on a child, they will try and throw them off. Mm-hmm. And in this, that's a trauma response as well. And change, mm-hmm. any type of change. And you often hear in this case I recently participated in, it, it's been in the news and it, there's a criminal prosecution associated with it, where the parents' rights were, were ultimately terminated. But doesn't that fit into the statute? Because it says if a parent is deceased, right, or otherwise incapacitated, doesn't it? It does. So why doesn't incarceration count? That's one of the hypocritical aspects that I see. And that's the the case where I'm representing a family of an incarcerated individual. Wouldn't it be fantastic if someone, it could, I could see the abuse of it, but if someone was incarcerated that their family could still have a relationship with that child? It would seem proper. It absolutely seems proper. There are circumstances, if the family was on the sidelines for many years, and never tried, because as I said, sometimes you can have arbitrary and capricious people reject all efforts to be a part of the family. Mm-hmm. The, those efforts have to be credited. You can't simply you know, allow a person's efforts to prevent contact to cause an automatic win, because their motives, the, the, when they demonstrate arbitrary conduct, that has to be taken into account especially if you can show a history objectively of sending gifts to a child or making outreach to the child, sending cards to the child and trying to communicate with the child in whatever way you can. And ordinarily those aren't active communications. It's, I'll call them passive ways, meaning cards and letters or gifts versus phone calls and videos or physical visits because 
those simply would never be permitted by the biological parent. The grandparent should have a right. I read a statistic today that 7% of the children in the United States live with grandparents. I wouldn't be surprised. It doesn't sound like a big number, but it sounds like a big number to me. It is a big number. That's a big number of kids who are not with their parents for whatever reason and raised specifically with grandparents, not other aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, any of those, grandparents, that percentage. I, I, I am sure that there are any number of grandparents who shouldn't be you know, within 150 yards of a child. And I'm talking about those folks who are genuine, good, caring, loving people who just want to enrich a child's life. If you can demonstrate that as one of the foundational aspects of your argument, plus the other things that we discussed, either active participation in the child's life or consistent efforts that have been rebuffed to be involved in the child's life, that when one parent is taken out of the picture by the you know, by death, incarceration, they're otherwise incapacitated, that the law should not lock the door on them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the deployment statute. I, in my practice, ran across it several years ago, and I find it absolutely fascinating for a number of reasons. I thought at first that the specificity that the statute gives with the 90-day deployment but no longer than 18 months and the fact that you could designate someone and it, that it could include your parents, that fascinated me right away. And then I also knew my dependency statute already about grandparents, so I thought those two things seemed similar. Mm-hmm. But then I started to get very confused as to how the other statutes about grandparents' rights are written. And tell me about the deployment statute. Yeah, the deployment statute... The most fascinating aspect of that was that you, that the non-deployed parent essentially has to co-parent with a designee. Uh-huh. To me, from the perspective of whether or not we're being intellectually honest about what the rights of a parent are, whether or not the Constitution means what people said it means, that's what struck me the most. Because I, I get it. There, we do lots of things in law for purely social reasons because we want to honor and respect certain people or traditions. But it's interesting is that when a parent deploys, there's no test. There's no requirement that that person be shown to have been a good parent. So it is basically an homage to to soldiers and sailors. And look, I don't bemoan that. I don't have an issue with that. I think it's laudable that the mere fact of deployment should not permit the the non-deployed spouse or parent to cut the, the deployed parent's family off. They, they shouldn't. Or see their siblings, things like there's more than True, just they, adults they could, involved. They, yeah, they, it's not just their parents who they can Right, and then to. when someone's deployed and they have a child, if that child were to only go to the non-deployed parent, then that child may have to switch schools. Mm-hmm. There's a number of implications to that logic. There, there are, potentially. I think that time-sharing schedules and contact schedules might be different if there are a great distance between the deployed parent's family and the remaining parent. Mm-hmm. But the point of dishonesty, the point of hypocrisy, is you can't say that you have this protected space of privacy and then say, but for our boys in uniform, we're 
going to say you don't have, the other parent doesn't have that right. That's equal protection, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. That was the problem I had under the Constitution is you have to treat people who are similarly situated similarly. And you could make the same argument for an over-the-road trucker who might, be, might have to be out of town for three weeks in a month. Why would you not then be required to formulate parenting plans that allow that parent's family? Again, you're talking about folks who've been separated. That parent's family to participate. If you're dealing with an intact family, a lot of this... Well, it doesn't apply a no. lot, unless you're a grandparent under the temporary custody statute. Right. Right. But that dependency statute that I mentioned earlier, when I said it goes into the intensity of the relationships, it even says that the contact is supposed to be frequent and meaningful. It includes that, but it doesn't include any of that language in the military statute. It doesn't say um much or any other restrictions it just says the military person gets to designate their designee for example if you had a military and let's take we'll go for the low-hanging fruit okay you have a divorced a situation where the parties are divorced or a situation where they were never married one of them's in the military one of them's not and there's a parenting plan in place mm-hmm. in that case i read the statute as permitting the deployed person to designate a family member to step into their shoes. I do too. And it's hard to write laws that account for every single contingency. The books are large enough without adding yes. adding that requirement. But you don't need to address all the situations to recognize the fact that we're being a bit disingenuous when we talk about the rights of parents as opposed to or acting in concert with the rights of extended family. And the rights of the child. And the rights of the child. Mm -hmm. The child does have a right to to be enriched by the presence of extended family. Now, some of us are neglectful. Some of us simply don't have the time. Some of us are separated by distance. There are any number of reasons why extended family may not be involved. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that you have to be at grandma and grandpa's every weekend, or you have to be at Aunt Betty and Uncle Joe's every weekend, or you have to have pictures demonstrating every Christmas and Thanksgiving you're together. I'm not suggesting that standard. I'm suggesting that there be some meaningful relationship that the child should not be separated from. The child should be allowed to recognize their maternal or paternal family as long as there's no reason, there's no, no suggestion that, A, the, the child won't be harmed by doing so, and, and particularly, B, that the nature, frequency, nature and frequency of the contact was such that the child would be harmed if denied that contact. Right. And the central theme is always the best interest of the child. It is Allegedly. throughout family law. Allegedly, I will say. I keep saying this, but I should probably stop saying it because it's true about everything I'm saying in our respective practices. There are many parents who are unable to distinguish their interests from the parents, even though the statute on parent plan, parenting plans is very clear that one of the factors used is the capacity and disposition of a parent to subjugate their interest to the interests of the child. And... That's one of the points of failure I see most frequently, where 
in relocation cases, for example, you see it often, where a parent says, I hate this. It, you know, how am I going? I don't want to go to travel. I don't want to be inconvenienced. But they rarely talk about why would this be actually bad for the child. And you know, on the flip side, I want to go, but you can't, you, you're unable to announce how and to what extent it would be, it would be good for the children. A lot of parents that I get in relocation cases have do have a hard time with articulating why it's going to be in the child's best interest. I always hear, I got a better job, or I'm going to be around more family. And there's an inherent benefit to those things, but you have to prove it, right? You have to prove everything. Mm-hmm. And economics aside, it's one of the factors. One of the factors. I mean, there was a number of years ago in analyzing the alimony statutes, one of the factors was the marital standard of living, as you remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a number of cases, the fourth district court included, came out saying, no, no, no. The standard of living is not some super factor. It doesn't get this outsized weight or outsized importance. Because a lot of the relocation cases that I was looking at especially before the statute was amended, deal with quality of life issues. They weren't necessarily uh, purely economic statutes, uh, purely economic-based moves. It's important to recognize there are lots of reasons why someone might go. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you see one of the parents is, is in the military and their spouse, pardon me, one of the parents is married to a member of the military and their spouse is deployed to places far flung. And it requires a relocation of the child. Yeah. Those are tough cases too. Yeah, they are. And yeah, it in what we do, you know, most judges give you a result. And I think most judges look at they look at the law, they hear the evidence, and they give a result based on applying the evidence to the law. In, mo- in most cases, you get simply that, a result. It's very difficult in a lot of our cases to say who won, who lost. I don't know that there's any real winners except for in relocation. In relocation cases, <laughs> you get... Yes, you either move or you don't. Exactly. Someone's rights are curtailed, someone's inconvenienced, as to the parents. I, I, I don't know that I would want to be the litigant in those cases. They're hard. They're complicated, they're difficult to litigate, and if you stick with the factors and you collect your evidence and you identify the things that the statute calls for, including the parenting plan statute, which is incorporated, it's a long and difficult process, but you can put together the evidence. But you have to take the focus off the parent. You have to put the focus on the child, which parent was the primary caregiver, which parent knew the teachers, knew the doctors, which parent knew the play date friends. And you start to look at how the parents truly interacted. I had a case a number of years ago. It was a relocation case after a six-day trial. So you can get a sense of the magnitude of this case. Wow. And the judge found my client had met her burden. But the husband, it was a divorce as well, he had a number of mental health issues. He had been absent. There were some issues with gambling. And when you started to look at gambling records, you realized that despite his claims that he was close and 
wanted to be with his children. He was frequently in the casino at times when you'd ordinarily expect someone who's close and wanting to be with their children would be with their children. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the judge said, my client met her burden. But then said, husband, the question is whether or not we give him a second chance. And so we appealed it because he wouldn't let my client go because he essentially relieved the husband of meeting his burden to show that really wasn't in the child's best interest. You can't be speculative about evidence. And that's one of the things with these grandparents things. The more and better relationship you have now, the less speculative you are. As soon as you're saying, I haven't, but you're dealing with speculation. When you're in the position of not having experiences, not having an objective basis of proof upon which your arguments lie, you're dealing with someone to simply assume that what you're saying is true and assume that you will act as you've testified you will. That is a really thin foundation upon which to base an article for time-sharing in the future. You're right. As you were talking, I was thinking about how you mentioned that last fact pattern was in the context of a divorce. In reviewing, I was looking at how grandparents have absolutely no standing in a divorce at all. No. What do you think about that? Because, and let me say, what do you think about that? Because don't we all usually, I mean, as a norm, participate in the extended family of our spouses as well? And then what happens when people get divorced, Martin? It depends. Well, what happens with litigation divorces, Martin? The ones that we handle. Yeah, litigation, divorce is a full contact sport. Mm -hmm. That is not the time to worry about hurting your spouse's feelings when there are bad things to say. But you have to put your, you don't amplify things to the point of being unnecessarily cruel. But you often have to bring forward evidence of bad information that will create, in some cases, an irreparable rift between people. Right. So you will often, people will circle the wagons, pull their friends, you can be my friend or her friend or talk to family and says, yeah, I know that I've known you since birth and now you're 10, but you can't talk to your aunt or your uncle anymore. People become tribal. And they often cut off everybody that's associated with their ex. I see that a lot. I do too. I do too. The problem with the premise of allowing grandparents in at the divorce stage is you're dealing with speculation. It violates the Arthur principle. The courts don't have a a crystal ball. Courts don't have the ability to say, yeah, I think you may alienate the other side's parents. But what about making a finding in the family law trial about the relationship with the grandparents so that if that parent, the other parent, unnecessarily interferes with that relationship, that it gives, then might give the grandparents some standing if they can prove the other factors. Why not? If you were to create a tapestry that included both the divorce laws and the grandparents' rights laws, Mm -hmm. then evidence concerning the relationship of the grandparents. And sometimes there's an aspect of that relationship that is admissible now because the parenting plan factors include the extent to which you rely on third parties 
You know, well, that's exactly what I was thinking services. just now. So in that context, you can say my the, the, uh, husband or my wife, I have to divorce. They have no family here. They have no one to support them. And again, you make that argument. You're suggesting that they're on their own and you're not going to help. You're not going to lift a finger as long as you know that they're disadvantaged. But mm-hmm. that's besides the point. But then you can bring in some evidence of the extent to which extended family was a part of the child's life. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a bridge too far, I think, to start to then make a finding as to whether or not that involvement was beneficial or harmful to the child. Yeah. As a naked fact, simply saying that they were there, it gets you a little bit towards the goal, but it doesn't get you far down the path. If Martin Kofsky was writing a grandparent rights statute, where would you start with it? Yeah, I would start with the premise that, you know, in the absence of proof to the contrary, that the the prior existence of an active and positive relationship between grandparents or other family members prior to the separation or prior to the death or prior to the divorce, that the presence of that kind of relationship would be very important. Secondly, in the absence of a current and active relationship, objective proof that the parent, that the grandparents or extended family made diligent and consistent efforts to be involved in the child's life in accord with the wishes of their aligned child or family member, but were rebuffed by the paternal or the maternal family, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the, very similar to the other factors that you look in a parenting plan, you look at you know logistical issues, you look at whether or not the grandparent is likely to respect the role of the child's biological parent. Are they going to heed, you know, punishments? Mind you, if the child is always punished when they go to the grandparents to simply restrict the child's ability to do anything with them, that's one thing. We're talking about legitimate behavioral issues. If you're looking at um, situations where they recognize and respect the the boundaries between parent and non-parent, and can be a beneficial part of the child's family. I mean, you have to take that into consideration. You have to look at any improper infringement on the parent. If the grandparents say, look, I have a bridge game on Thursdays, and that's and I can't have time sharing, but that's the only day that the other parent has available for them, you know, the grandparents don't get to place their own interests. You have to apply the similar standards. You have to make people say if you want to if you really want to stand up and say my relationship with this child is that important that I'm willing to fight for it don't put little things in the way don't create your own obstacles if right. it's that important just as a parent may have to give up things to enjoy time with their child and that grandparent should as well and i'm sure you say this to your clients as i say it to mine it's unfortunate but many of us and i'm once divorced become far better parents after the divorce than we were before. Yeah. Because you no longer take your child's presence for granted. 
you often mistake proximity for closeness. Just because you're under the same roof does not say anything about the quality of a relationship. I know plenty of kids who have long-distance relationship with their grandparents, and they have wonderful relationships with them. Because it's what they talk about. It's the ideas they exchange. It's that general sense of caring and concern for one another. It's the child's knowledge that there's someone out there who really would walk through a wall for me if they needed to. It doesn't matter whether or not they share a roof. The relationships are built out of far sturdier things than a home. Absolutely. I like the Chapter 39 statute. It really lays out a lot of the things that you're talking about in similarity, a mirror, but not the exact image, I guess, because on, for example, it does when you say can't interfere with the parent, it specifically says there that they can't interfere with the case plan goals, you know, things like that. I think there's a way if you just like the need for a parenting plan in real life for everybody else. If you write the rules and you're structured on what they are and you set the limits, I think it could potentially be done. I, I agree with you. The issue is we have to. We have to be on it. When I say we, I'm talking about societally, not you and me. We're on the same page. <laughs> Yeah, we have to be honest with ourselves that yeah, the right of privacy is not quite as robust a, a, a right when it comes to parenting as we claim. If you can force a non-parent, a parent to co-parent with a non-parent simply because their child is a member of the military who's been deployed or their brother is a member of the military or sister, then the right is not what it has been made out to be. And it's, we can go off on taboo topics and all that kind of stuff, if you'd like, in terms of claiming to protect the rights of of children versus the rights of parents or prospective parents and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But I, I think... There's so much that we could go into. Yeah. Maybe the next one. <laughs> so I really enjoyed having you, Martin. This has been fantastic. I will say, hands down, totally honest, best conversation I've had about grandparents' rights since I've been a lawyer. This was fantastic. I, I loved it. How does a listener, you, you're in Stewart, correct? Yes, but I, I service the entire Treasure Coast. Okay. How does a listener get a hold of you and, and tell, the, tell us the rest of what you specialize in? I've been a lawyer since 1992. I did finish as valedictorian in my class. and well, You are looking distinguished now with the, the well, white beard and the hair. It took my wife a bit to, to, to get used to it, but... Um, I've been a family lawyer predominantly for the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. You and I have litigated together. We have, cases, yes. Long I learned a lot from you. Cases. Thank you. Well, I think we learned a lot from each other. Mm-hmm. But my office is in Stewart, Kofsky Law Office, and my phone number is 772-919. Actually, that's my cell phone. 919-1397. I give my cell phone to all my clients anyway, which is there why it go. comes to mind first. 212-4457 is... The number we're right in downtown Stewart next to the courthouse. Fantastic. And thanks for sharing in this experience with me. If you guys think we sound better this time, it's because we're in a studio recording. It's fantastic. No, I appreciate you having me, Karen. Uh, Susan. I did almost call you Karen, didn't I? Uh, at least I don't act like a Karen. Right? No, you don't. No, you don't. You, you're anything but. You're, you're gracious, professional, and smart. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of From Foster Care to Family Law, A Child Welfare Focus. 
I hope that this interview provided some valuable insight to help you deal with your unique circumstances. If you found this episode useful, please share this with friends and family that could benefit from this information. If you have a family law need or related matter, please contact me directly and I will be happy to help you.